0: Uh, I woke up yesterday morning with a stiff neck and I realized you know what it's kind of lame to injure yourself in your sleep it's about as as lame as it gets but anyways I'm surviving it's basically yeah um that wasn't a very good story but anyways my message today is about the greatest storyteller ever I'm not talking about myself I'm talking about God because I believe the Bible tells the greatest story ever told And that God is the author, the main author of the Bible, even though he worked through human hands. And I love stories. I've always loved stories, um, stories in any format I just love. And I was watching a TV show um, this week, and it came to the finale, and there was a huge twist, a twist I didn't see coming. And I was amazed. I was like, how do they keep this hidden this whole time? But then you know after the twist is revealed and you begin to go back and you begin to look at all the other episodes you think oh they were hinting at something there was some hints being dropped and it's this weird thing that like the finale can inform everything else that came before things that maybe made no sense you didn't think much of beforehand but then all of a sudden you just the meaning is there and you're just like wow man whoever wrote this is a genius and You know, that's the way I see scripture is, and it's one of the ways you can interpret scripture. It's a little bit different than kind of the normal way. Um, The primary way a lot of people interpret scripture would be called the historical grammatical method. And what that is, is basically using the historical context along with uh, the grammar. And so originally the Bible would be written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And so when you study kind of both of those things you can get a very good idea uh, and it, you know of what it says and understand it but that's kind of like a, a word by word sentence by sentence way of looking at scripture and an, another way that we were talking about today is kind of like this zoomed out way looking looking at it from further away and it, it's kind of looking at it like you would a novel or like a movie a big a big story and you're looking for literary themes Themes that are kind of woven throughout all of all of this the story. So instead of like book by book, sentence by sentence, you're kind of looking at it as a one big book as a whole, kind of, and looking for all these different patterns, patterns, and this connective tissue. And the Bible, in a lot of ways, is kind of like this multi-layered tapestry, all sorts of threads just woven together to tell a beautiful story. And that's kind of what we're going to look at today. And What's so neat about the Bible is that it's, it's 66 different books written by 40-some different authors over the course of about 1,500 years. But yet, with all that extreme diversity, it possesses in it, like this, this wild level of interconnectivity. And it just shows that there's this main author who is just weaving everything together to form this beautiful tapestry to tell the greatest story ever told. And the more you study the Bible, the more this becomes more and more apparent. You just see God is all over the place, weaving things together. Despite there being human authors, his spirit is just moving through and creating this great, great story. So I want to start off with a scripture reading from Luke 24, verses 25 to 33. This tells tells the story of the road to Emmaus. And it's, it's basically about right after Jesus dies on the cross, and we know he resurrected three days after that, But these guys didn't know that. Um, All they knew is this: they had followed Jesus, you know, for probably a few years. They've seen him do miracles. They were like, I'm pretty sure this is the guy the Old Testament is talking about. He's the Messiah. He's this king that we've been waiting for, the one whose kingdom is never going to end. And it was looking amazing. Then all of a sudden, Jesus gets executed. And it's like this big gut punch. It's like, what just happened? Their hopes and dreams dashed. And so they, you know, they, they were just in utter disarray, couldn't believe it, didn't know what to do. And kind of in their, their disillusionment, they began to pack up and get ready to leave Jerusalem. And you know, they, they had heard rumor that, you know, some women had found that the tomb was empty, but it just, it just didn't hit home for them. They thought, you know, I, he's dead, he, he, like that's the end. So they, they just headed home. They started to walk home to Emmaus. And Emma, Emmaus is about a, a two and a half hour walk from Jerusalem. And on this walk, even though they had given up, Jesus hadn't given up on them. And he does this kind of really cool thing where he, he appears to them, all of a sudden comes out of nowhere and he starts walking with them. And he keeps himself disguised, hidden, so they, they don't realize who he is. And he he basically plays dumb and he's like, hey, you got, where, where where are you coming from? Where are you going? Uh, and they you know, start to tell him. And he's like, start to tell him about this weekend. And he's like, Jesus, who's Jesus? Never heard of this guy. And then they kind of go on and they explain the whole situation and how they were like, yeah, this was the guy we we were sure Scripture was talking about. That all these Old Testament scriptures written hundreds and hundreds of years ago they were prophesying about him. We were so sure, but then he died. And then Jesus chimes in here and he starts to explain scripture to them. That's where we're going to pick up the story. So verse 25, Luke 24. Then Jesus said to him, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, that's a bunch of the rest, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. So over this period of two and a half hours on this seven-mile walk, Jesus goes through the entire Old Testament and says, look, take a look at this it has been showing the messiah again and again and again and their hearts were just burning he was showing them how continually this text is prophetically pointing to jesus so i'm going to pull a page out of jesus's book and for the next two and a half hours i will also take you through the entire old testament no i'm just kidding it won't be that long um <laughs> I can't go into things the same amount of detail that Jesus did. Um, but that's kind of what we're going to do today is look through the Old Testament with kind of that lens as if we were almost looking at like this, this movie or this novel and see all these literary themes, this these, foresh- these foreshadowing uh, of Jesus. And it just shows you that God is just paying attention to details. I love the details. I care about the finest of things, the finest of details. And God's like that. And again, it's just like this weaving of these tiny threads all together on the the thread by itself. You might not think anything of, but when it's woven into the tapestry, all of a sudden things just start to make sense and come alive. And I think this just shows that God is such an amazing expert storyteller. And as, as we see in Scripture how he can weave the lives of people together like nobody else, we can take comfort knowing that God is also weaving our lives together. He's doing something amazing in us that we can't see just yet. And maybe you're like these two guys that were from Emmaus. You're feeling discouragement, disillusionment. You've experienced a loss of some kind. Things really don't make sense right now. They're, lo- they're not looking so good. And you're not sure how things are gonna work out. But I just wanna encourage you today to don't give up. Don't pack it in like they did. Wait on the Lord and believe that He can weave together your story. And that there's an incredible redemption coming your way. So let's begin this deep dive into scripture. So there's lots and lots of prophetic words about Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, These are some of the main ones. We're not going to do the main ones today. We're going to do some of the seemingly insignificant ones somewhat. Some of them are. And then, uh, yeah, show how they all kind of just come together and, and tell this amazing story. But, famously there's supposed to be this messiah figure this hero coming to the nation of israel and it's someone who's going to bless the entire world descendant of abraham um, and it's going to be an israelite within the tribe of judah and the line of david born in bethlehem to a virgin he's going to be called god with us he's going to live a sinless life and he's going to suffer and die to break the power of sin rise again and have everlasting and have an everlasting kingdom so those are kind of some of the main ones that are that are in there and Uh, We won't talk about those today because it's kind of of easy, but I kind of just want to look at some of the famous Bible stories. You've probably read many, many times, watched movies on, didn't quite realize of how they are telling the story of Jesus. They're foreshadowing Jesus thousands and hundreds of years before him. So the first one we'll go to is the Exodus story, famous story of Moses and the Israelites, let my people go, all that fun stuff. So there's a book in the New Testament, Galatians, that makes the connections between the Exodus story and the story of Jesus very, very clear. makes that comparison. And just for a quick recap, if you've never heard this story before. So God's, people's, God's people, they were slaves. They were oppressed. Uh, under the, you know, they were under, under the thumb of the evil empire of Egypt. So God sent a representative of himself to speak on his behalf. and to rescue the captives, to set the captives free, and to bring them to a land that he had prepared for them, this promised land. So a bunch of events kind of happen, and basically God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt. He leads them to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is miraculously split in half, and so they cross on dry land. And then the pursuing enemy army attempts to follow, but the the walls of the Red Sea collapse on them and totally destroy that entire army but then as they got uh, you know on the other side of the Red Sea they, they, they were in the wilderness unfortunately they began to sin they were tempted in a few different ways um, kind of their main one was that they were they were worshiping other gods they were looking to other other gods to meet their needs things were looking tough at different times to them so they said you know what Let's ask these other gods for help. Obviously, these, these gods are fake. They're false ones. But they were going to them, looking for help. And, and they had these issues, particularly around food, wanted stuff to eat. And they also wanted protection because there's a bunch of uh, people that were hanging out in the wilderness. There were some unsavory characters. They're pretty dangerous. But anyway, so they, they, they failed. They failed in their mission to expand the kingdom of God, to make it into the promised land. And they got stuck there for 40 years. Now, if we fast forward to the time of Jesus, you'll see that he his life mirrors the Exodus story just beautifully. So even though Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he spent a bunch of his childhood in Egypt as a refugee, uh, running from a king that was trying to kill him. Anyway, so he also comes out of Egypt, and he begins his ministry by going to this this body of water where he is baptized, and then the sky splits open. So the verb that's used um, in the Bible there is the exact same one for the the splitting of the Red Sea. So the sky splits over in front of uh, in front of Jesus when he's getting baptized, same way the Red Sea split open. And then after Jesus is, you know, um, baptized, and also Scripture would refer to the Red Sea as a type of baptism. So after he passes through the waters, he goes also into the wilderness. And then he stays for 40 days, not 40 years, and he is also tempted. And his temptations are actually the the same ones that the Israelites were tempted with. He is tempted about food, protection, and also the worship of a false god, in this case, Satan himself. The Israelites failed these temptations, but Jesus succeeded where they failed. And in fact, he uses the scriptures to destroy the tactics of Satan. And he quotes exclusively from Deuteronomy 6 to 8, which is where Moses is telling the Israelites how not to fail, how not to fall into these these traps, these traps in the wilderness, how not to um, be pulled away from God and pulled away from your your mission, um, how not to miss out on the promised land. Now, similarly... Jesus was all about setting the captives free. In fact, his very first message is when he stood up and he quoted from Isaiah saying he is here to set the captives free. Now, of course, the captives he's referring to is people that are slaves to sin, which is all of us. And, he, and his mission was to set us free from that, to defeat the enemy that is oppressing God's people. And this promised land, this place that he has prepared for us to go is Heaven. So you can see lots of parallels between one of the most famous, probably the most famous Old Testament story, and then, of course, Jesus in the New New Testament. And throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zephaniah, they were prophesying that there's going to be a second exodus. So it's just connecting a bunch of the dots scripturally. And Jesus, of course, led that. But that's a pretty easy one that's fairly um, well-known scripturally. Here's one, another very famous story that you probably didn't realize also has all sorts of amazing, cool Jesus connections. That's the story of David and Goliath. Again, also one that would show up in movies or you're probably somewhat familiar with. This is a few hundred years after Moses. And once again, the people of God, people of Israel, they are in a spot of trouble. Things aren't very good, they are being oppressed by the enemy. There is a giant that is wearing scale armor, Goliath of Gath, and he is mocking God's people, and he has them cowering in fear. But there's this young shepherd named David. David means beloved. It's important for later. Anyway, so David, he's from the tribe of Judah. He lived in Bethlehem. And he has the bravery to come and face this giant. And he uses a slingshot and throws a rock at Goliath's head, and kills him and then all the enemy that is there to oppress the people of god the people of israel they they run away in fear and they're easily chased down and defeated then david goes up to goliath he takes his sword and he cuts off his head this is the part we don't tell the children (laughs) and then he takes his head to this big hill a ways away that is right outside a fortress of the jebusites which is one of the enemies of Israel. So he takes this big head of Goliath, he goes over to this fortress of the Jebusites, and this fortress is called Jerusalem. And he puts it, uh, you probably would have put it on a really big wooden stake. If you ever watched any movies, that's what people do with heads they cut off, I guess. Um, but anyways, he, he would have put that right on the top of the hill, prominently displaying this head. And you ask yourself, like, why? Why, why would you carry this bloody, gross head On this long journey walk up this mountain and put it on the top why would you do that now this is one of those moments as we're gonna find out here you wonder about how much David knew about the plan that God had coming in the future we're gonna walk through some fun stuff here so the very first prophecy ever given in the Bible is actually given to Satan so he tempts Adam and Eve into sinning in the garden and they do and remember, I talked about this, last time. I think, last time I preached Satan uh, in, in, the, in the Old Testament in this passage of Scripture. The word that's being used there is nakash in Hebrew, which means shining one, diviner, and serpent, which is a very good description of a deceptive fallen angel. But anyways, God says, says to him in Genesis 3.15, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This is ultimately a prophecy about Jesus. There's going to be somebody that is born in the line of Eve, one of her descendants, and he's going to step on your head. He's going to crush your head. And of course, uh, yeah, as we know, Jesus did do that. But kind of the funny part here, I'll just touch on real quick here, is, is God saying this? There's going to be animosity between Eve's offspring and Satan's offspring. So we know obviously Eve had kids, and then you're like, whoa, did Satan have snake babies? Like, what's going on here? That didn't happen. So what he's, what's re- referred to is that anyone that follows in Satan's footsteps is referred to as like one of his kids, basically. Jesus referred to some of his opponents, some of the the Pharisees that were uh, really coming against him. He called them a brood of vipers, which is basically saying, you family of snakes. Uh, he's also referred to other people as being like the children of the devil. So that's what it is. You're either team team God or team Satan. And God is basically saying in this prophetic word that there's, there's going to be animosity between team God and team Satan. But guess what? One of one of the descendants that's going to show up in team uh, Team God is going to crush your head. So we're going to see that David is kind of moving in this prophetic um, wave, basically, that, that he's kind of following along somewhat in this, and he's kind of foreshadowing this again. So Goliath is obviously team Satan. And this is one of the things you can kind of lose track of scripturally. Because in the Hebrew, when it says he has scale armor, we often think of like chain mail or something like that, which wasn't invented in probably like a, another 1,000 years. But the root word there in Hebrew for that scale armor is actually serpent. So what it's saying there is that Goliath has serpentine scale armor. Not a coincidence. He's very much so team, team Satan, team evil, coming against the people of God. But David stands up and he defeats him, and his head is quote unquote crushed. So this is kind of a reference, eventually, what Jesus is about to do one day. Jesus is the greater David. But anyways, Goliath's head's taken to this hill outside the fortress of Jerusalem and put on display for all to see on this big long piece of wood. So now we fast forward about a thousand years to Jesus. So Jesus, when he is baptized. God shouts out from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son. Remember, David means beloved. He's basically saying, this is my David's son. This is my king's son. Again, that, that messianic aspect of things is, is right in there, right from the beginning. David's also, or sorry, Jesus is also known as the great shepherd, the great king of the tribe of Judah. He's in the line of David from Bethlehem. Of course, we know he was crucified. But as he's crucified, he was crucified on a hill right outside Jerusalem on a wooden cross put on display for all to see. Now the hill that he is crucified on is called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now you can see it in English, but more so in Hebrew that Golgotha is a combination of Goliath of Gath. Interesting. So David is putting on display on the same hill, the head of this team Satan giant, to celebrate the victory over the forces of darkness, over the forces of evil that was won. And it's the exact same spot that Jesus one day was also put on display to show off the greatest victory of all time. Because on that that cross, on that hill, that same hill, Jesus slayed every giant. He defeated the power of sin, restoring our relationship with God. He gave us an access to heaven and he defeated Satan and the powers of darkness, fulfilling that prophecy way back in Genesis of crushing the head of the enemy. So let me just show you a map here. This is a cool map. So this is on top of Mount Moriah. Pay attention to this for later, Mount Moriah. And you can see the temple that's there. Uh, That's eventually, that was built by David's son, Solomon. So it would have been there at the time of Jesus. Oh, actually, so, no, a replacement of that temple is there at the time of Jesus. But anyways, um, Jesus is, is killed just a stone's throw away from that temple at this place called Golgotha Hill. So you can see that location is kind of prime for putting things on display right outside the city. This hill right outside the city that everyone inside the city can see is visible from inside the fortress So you're probably wondering, why is there a random hill on the top of a mountain that's just there? Why was it left there? So this mountain had been quarried. They dug up a bunch of this mountain, and they used it to make the walls of Jerusalem. Except there was one mound of stone, Golgotha Hill, that they didn't use. Because the builders rejected the stone, because they didn't think it was good for building. So again, this is something that's kind of interesting about Scripture, because jesus quotes from psalm 118 written about a thousand years before him he says this in matthew 21 42 the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone now there's lots and lots of prophetic layers in that statement like jesus kind of being nicknamed the rock or he's the stone uh lots of prophetic things with that is his nickname we also find it interesting that literally the, the cornerstone of our faith the foundation of our faith the the, the symbol of Christianity is this cross that stood on a hill of rejected stone. The amount of, like, biblical connections is just wild. And again, thousands of years. If you read Psalm 118 where this statement is, this, this verse about the rejected stone, it just seems really out of place. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? It's just like a thread that you're just like, I don't know what this means. But then all of a sudden, a thousand years later, all sort, in like multiple different ways, that statement takes on meaning, incredible meaning. Again, it's just showing you how amazing the Bible is, how far in advance God is, that he cares about such fine details. Making verses suddenly all make sense in like multiple different ways. It's wild. Brings me to my third point, which is the third day. The third day. This is another theme that is all throughout Scripture the continual significance in the Old Testament of the third day. We know that Jesus rose from the grave after being crucified on the third day. And it was three days after the Passover festival. In Luke 24, 46, Jesus says that it is written that the Christ, the Messiah should suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. In 1 Corinthians fifteen four, Paul says that Jesus being raised on the third day was in accordance with the scriptures. So you both are referring to the Old Testament scriptures, obviously. The thing is, nowhere in the Old Testament is it explicitly explicitly stated that the Messiah is going to rise on the third day. There's no easy verse to connect the dots for that one. But, however, it is continually, and I mean continually, foreshadowed thematically. There's actually nearly 50 references in the Old Testament to the third day being this day of salvation. I'm just going to mention a handful here. We're not going to go through all 50 We'll go right back to the story of Abraham, the first person that God came to and began his, his mission of redemption. So right from the very beginning, God is foreshadowing this. Of course, as you know the story of Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're not un- unable to have kids. So God supernaturally enables the birth of a promised child. The child through who all the world is going to end up being blessed through this child's descendants. This child is named Isaac. But then a number of years later god says to abraham that isaac is going to need to be sacrificed on the top of mount moriah remember that from david's story that's the temple mount mount moriah so isaac is given a death sentence and he has to walk up mount moriah and as he's walking up mount moriah scripture says that he had to carry a bunch of wood on his back no anyone else that walked up mount moriah with a bunch of wood on his back There he is, headed to be sacrificed. But on the third day, he experienced salvation from death because God provided an alternate sacrifice. Of course, that is a reference thousands of years in advance of what Jesus would one day do on that same mountain, Mount Moriah. He'd be the sacrifice. He'd be the promised child that would die for the sins of the world. Now we go to the time of Moses course you know the story that god sent a bunch of plagues to egypt to get them to let god's people go there's one, one one plague in particular that's kind of interesting it's the plague of darkness now scripture talks a lot about how there's this darkness that's covered the world sin and that god needs to help us see see the truth see what's really real interesting that this plague of darkness when it hit egypt on the third day it was removed now, after Israel gets its release from Egypt, they start to head back home. So three days after the very first Passover. Again, that's significant with Jesus. He dies three days after, sorry, he rises again three days after Passover. So the Israelites, they, they, they escaped Egypt. Three days after, after leaving, they get to the Red Sea. And of course, we know the story of their salvation they encounter at the Red Sea, Where there is a way made where there seems to be no way where they are rescued from certain death and given life and the enemy is defeated i don't know if you've ever connected that before that the whole red sea story happens on the exact same day that jesus rose from the grave fast forward a few chapters exodus 15. so three days after they've now crossed the red sea they're in the wilderness and they find that they do not have anything to drink They hadn't found any water yet. If you know kind of basic science, you know that if you go longer than that without water, you're going to die. So this is an entire nation on the brink of death that has not had anything to drink in three days. They find this oasis in the desert, but the water was undrinkable. It was bitter. So they prayed to God for help. And God showed them this tree that was nearby, this, this piece of wood. And he said that this wood needs to be thrown into the bitter waters. And when it and when it was thrown in, the contamination was removed. The water was made pure and the people were saved. And hopefully you're seeing the allusions to the cross again, thousands of years ahead of time. So we think of how God has removed the contamination of sin that we couldn't really have the life that we needed or wanted. We were staring death in the face. But the cross, that this piece of wood... It, make, it makes a way, it removes, you know, the, the sin within us, the contamination of sin. It makes us pure. It gives us life in the face of death. And also you can see the allusion to a spring of living water, which is something that God puts in us, his Holy Spirit. So again, preaching the gospel, a bunch of the gospel story thousands of years beforehand. Lots of an, Lots of amazing foreshadowing. So we keep going. Exodus 19, a few chapters later. The Israelites have now arrived at Mount Sinai. And when they get there, they're told, You need to wait. You need to wait for three days. And then after the three days, you're going to see God in his full glory and his full majesty, like you would have never ever thought before. So they have to wait three days, and then God comes down the mountain and he introduces himself to the nation of Israel. Again, can you think of another time where there was three days of waiting, three days. We had to wait for God to show up in his amazing majesty and an amazing victory and amazing power like you would have never thought or seen before. Again, just another incredible connection. Here we go, Joshua 1. Israel now gets on the precipice of the promised land. They don't have access yet. But God says, you need to wait three days. And then you're going to have access to the promised land. Again, fast forward to the time of Jesus. There was a three-day waiting time. But when Jesus rose again, that gave us all access to the real promised land, heaven. Again, preaching the gospel thousands of years in advance. We go to 2 Samuel 24. Israel is suffering from a plague. People are dying. It's looking really, really bad. David prays about it. He asks for help. And God says, wait three days and you're gonna be rescued, and they were. Here's one, another one in the Old Testament. Jesus explicitly mentions this one, and this, this is a story that if you read on its own, you would never connect to Jesus. You would never think it was a Messiah thing that, that is prophetic. A lot of people laugh at this story. That's the story of Jonah. It's so Jonah when he's swallowed by a big fish. It's a guy that tried to run away from God. God gave him a mission uh, to, to preach this story of salvation and he didn't and he didn't want to do it. but anyways he tried to run, ended up uh, being thrown overboard, um, swallowed by fish. but anyway Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12 verse 40 he says, "For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of man, that's the nickname of Jesus will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Interesting also with the story of Jonah, that after he is spit on shore, he goes to the wicked city city of Nineveh, and he preaches for three days. And then the city repents, turns to God, and is saved from the judgment of God. Interesting, again, that three days, is just three, in the valley of the well, three days, three nights. And then also preaching for three days, and then this story of salvation that's in there, and saved from the judgment of God. Another, another one is the in, in the book of Esther the famous story of Esther Esther is foreshadowing Jesus as well. So during the exile this is a time period where again Israel went into a bunch of sin they ended up kind of mostly being kidnapped and taken away to foreign foreign lands and there was this plan put in place that you know that all the Jews, all of God's people were going to be killed so there, there they are facing certain death. But then Esther, she petitions the king. For three days, and on the third day, was granted access to the king. Her petition was heard, and the lives of all of God's people were saved. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. Again, there's like a, close to 50 references that are somewhat similar similar to this that are just continually foreshadowing the, the significance of the of the third day. But there's also some in the a New Testament. I'm just going to do one. Um, this one's it's just a little bonus here. But in Luke 2, when Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, his family travels to Jerusalem for Passover. Again, there's that other connection. He's in Jerusalem on Passover. And then he gets lost, and he is lost for three days. That's a 12-year-old boy. Lost for three days, but then he is found on the third day. And he's found, found in the temple, found in his father's house. And it's interesting. It's like God was repairing Mary prophetically. Um, but 21 years in advance, That one day she's going to lose jesus for three days she's going to lose her son for three days only for him later to be found on the third day like literally these this thread is just everywhere throughout scripture it's wild but anyways this brings me to my conclusion so what's the point why are you telling me all this what's going on here why are we talking about all this stuff so on one hand yeah it's showing the bible is a supernatural book again written 66 different books written by 40 some different authors over the course of 1500 years but yet there are so many threads that are just go through entirely that are just pointing to Jesus. So the, 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 the connectivity is just wild can' and it can't be denied and we know that we know that someone didn't come and edit the Bible to do that after the fact because we we have um, pieces of pieces of the Old Testament um, Old Testament copies that are even older than Jesus's. I was looking up last night I think our oldest one is 700 years um, before Jesus parts of the Old Testament that we have. But yeah, even though the Bible is written by human hands, you just see God's spirit in it connecting all sorts of things and this obviously ensuring the accuracy. And there's, there's actually literally hundreds of thousands of connections scripturally. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of connections. And there's no way that this would ever happen uh, naturally. No way that 40 different authors in different cultures that even spoke different languages over in the course of 1,500 years could connect things that well? No way. No way. It's impossible. But with God, obviously, all things are possible. But besides proving that the Bible truly is the Word of God, what does this mean? What does this mean for us in our own lives? What does this mean for us right here, right now? So you'll notice that many of these stories that we were referencing today, they didn't really have their full meaning revealed. Until the redemption story was finished. For a lot of us, a lot of the time, we're going to find ourselves in messes. And messes we do not understand. They do not make sense. We're going to be confused. And we'll be asking God, what's going on here? I don't understand. Why is this happening? And you just want God to tell you this is why or this is where things are headed. This is what I'm doing. But oftentimes we just, we don't hear that from God. We're stuck in a mystery. So you wonder, God, what's with the mystery? Why is there so much mystery about what's going on? I just Could you just tell me what I need to know? So, what, you know, what's going on there? So this, this is answered by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 7-9. to It says, no, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden... Even though he made it our ultimate glory, he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world, that's like the demonic team Satan, have, n- have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what, what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, when God is doing something amazing in you and you're surrounded by mystery and confusion and and you're, you're wondering how could this ever be woven together into a beautiful story, there's a purpose to that mystery. And that's so that the enemy, the enemy of your soul, the powers of darkness, that they don't know what's going on. Because when they don't know what's going on, they can't stop it. And then, when they can't stop it, you know that God's going to bring about that redemption. I have no doubt about it that God is always preaching his gospel story in your life. He is always preaching that story of redemption. If your story was kind of added somewhat to, to the Bible, it would mirror all these other stories of going through the, the, these times, these wilderness times. Um, but yet, God bringing his redemption. Someday you'll be able to look back and just watch and you may not even understand it all until you get to heaven of how God can just weave together your life. Threads you would have never thought of come together to weave into this beautiful tapestry telling about the amazing power and, uh, of God and his story of redemption. Sometimes we find ourselves shrouded in darkness. Sometimes we're lost. We just don't know where to go. Sometimes we become slaves to something. Sometimes we're feeling harassed and hunted down by the enemy. Other times we feel dry and empty, and we're just desperate for a, ref- a refreshment, for our souls to be refreshed. But yet we found ourselves surrounded by bitterness. Sometimes we feel like God is distant and unknowable. Sometimes we feel like we're just stuck playing the waiting game, desperate to walk into the promise that God has, promises that God has for us. Sometimes we're plagued with an illness. Sometimes we're even looking death in the face. But I want to encourage you this morning that whatever the situation, God is fully capable of redeeming it, of making that way where there seems to be no way, of making the beauty from ashes and turning our mourning into dancing and our sorrows into joy, of turning death into new life. That's what he does. And through it all, he will find out a way to tell an amazing, jaw-dropping, phenomenal redemption story because he is the greatest storyteller ever. You will just marvel at his attention to detail and and how he just wove all sorts of amazing things together in this wonderful, beautiful tapestry. He really is the author of our lives. I want to end with this Bible verse, and I'll ask the worship team to come up, and um, we'll play Great Are You, Lord, Was take some time to just kind of marvel at the greatness of god but i've been chewing on this verse for a bit here it says philippians 1 verse 6. it says i am certain that god who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when christ jesus returns if it's not good he's not finished And God is going to continue the work that he already has begun in you. He's going to do that again and again and again until the day Christ Jesus returns when he doesn't have to do it anymore. So if it's not finished yet, sorry, if it's not good, it's not finished yet. Let that be an encouragement today. God who started the good work, he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. So hold on to that today. If you're going, if you're, if, if you're like those guys, that were going to Emmaus, feeling discouraged, disillusioned, had their hopes dashed, their dreams destroyed. If it's not good, he's not finished, and God's gonna, he's gonna finish that good work. He's gonna bring that redemption story to pass. Just you wait. Hold on in faith. So God, we just thank you for who you are, the greatest storyteller ever. God, you're, just a, you're all about redemption, and you preach this gospel story, this story of redemption in each and every one of our lives continually, again and again. And God, we can all sit here and, and, and testify of how you've already done it, but we also know you're going to do it again. There's different, different contexts we walk through, different battles we face. And we just need to remember that your ability, you have this ability to redeem it all, to make a way where there seems to be no way, to weave it together into a beautiful story. So God, I pray for those today that might be looking even death in the face, that face, they're surrounded by despair, darkness, discouragement, disillusionment, pray God you're just going to encourage them and say, I got this. Just you wait and see. Things are going to make sense. I'm going to make the beauty from the ashes. I'm going to turn your sorrows into joy. I'm going to redeem this. I just pray hope is just going to arise in this place. And also for those watching online. That instead of being stuck in this disillusionment and this despair, that faith is going to fill their soul and say, I cannot wait to see how God Redeems this i cannot wait to see the end of this story i cannot wait to see the redemption come because when it comes it's going to be amazing and it's going to be worth it and god i pray that this this confidence in the face of despair and discouragement and even even loss this confidence this faith that would be something that marks us as different in this community and it would give us an opportunity to share the gospel story to people because we know that every life out there is in desperate need of redemption and so God I pray that you would give us opportunities to share this redemption story to our family and to our friends to our neighbors to our co-workers and we can talk about how God is preaching a story in each and every one of our lives that story of redemption that story that breaks breaks the power of sin that breaks the power of the powers of darkness And I pray people would also just feel kind of a download of your love right now as well. They'd realize that you're, you're their dad, you're, the, you're their father, and that you care about them. You care about the details. You're a God of the details. You care so much even about, the, even about the sparrows, and how much more do you care about us? And you're a good father who does not hold back your goodness from us. So again, I just pray people are just going to feel this download of your love here the, this morning. Things are going to be okay. Things are going to work out. God will make a way. In your name we pray. Amen.